This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today's topic is Sally, Tests, and Standardization. The story of Sally. Sally was a little girl I was working with last year during COVID. I was doing online tutoring with kids. This allowed me to work with kids all over the country. Now, Sally was in first grade. Before I started working with her, her parents sent me test data. I read through them. There were fancy charts and colorful graphs that showed Sally's score on a whole array of meaningless reading subskills. They measured her distance from average. All this data really showed me was that Sally had trouble reading. But we already knew this. Her parents knew this. Her teacher knew this. And Sally knew this. The numbers simply quantified what everyone already knew. And the testing made Sally feel more insecure about herself as a literate human being. Now, based on this test, Dad, I plan to teach a lot of letter sound association skills, letter patterns, phonograms, sight words, the usual stuff, but all within a meaningful context, of course. I had a plan in my head of what I needed to do with Sally. I was going to implement certain things and get Sally all fixed up, quick and easy, just like that. I've done it before. I can do it again. But then I talked with her father. Sally's test data said one thing, but a conversation with her father said something a little bit more insightful. Turns out that Sally was a bit anxious and insecure. She's also got a younger sister who is very certain, capable, and somewhat assertive. Sally doesn't want to be wrong. Being wrong or being seen as not able to do something was terrifying for her. So she got a bit locked up when she didn't instantly know how to do something. And when she got locked up, she didn't like what was making her locked up. She developed an aversion to it. Now, in training mice in a Skinner box, we call this aversive conditioning. We must never mistake conditioning mice in a Skinner box to teaching human beings how to read. That is, we should never use data gleaned from research with one species, like mice, and generalize it to another species, like human beings. Yet, in our educational world, we seem to do this all the time with applied behavioral analysis and functional this and that, rewards and manipulation. All right, that's an aside. Another aside, we often discount the impact of emotions on learning. But here's the thing. We emote and we learn with the same brain. It's silly to think that one would not impact the other. So when I'm working with a struggling reader, that's the first and most important thing I deal with. You have a bit of trouble with reading, I say. Not a big deal. Lots of kids have troubles. And we're all struggling with something. Anxiety is a form of fear. The fight or flight mechanism kicks in when you're scared. Stress triggers the body's fight or flight mechanism. The body reacts by pumping out 
an increased production of three stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine. Now, the body is well equipped to handle short bits of stress that fight or flight. However, production of the stress hormones over time, which is called chronic stress, or it's, it's a result of chronic stress, can atrophy areas of the brain that control emotional regulation, empathy, and social functions. Also, chronic stress over time challenges the body's ability to achieve homeostasis. And dysregulation impacts our high-level thinking and our ability to learn. Emotions impact learning. Learning impacts emotions. Back to Sally. I could have implemented my pre-planned ideas, but the impact on her reading would have been minimal. So with test data, you have to beware of the fallacy of numbers. Putting a number next to something does not make it more real. Describing things with fancy charts and graphs does not make them more valid. I have yet to find a standardized test that tells me exactly what I should do on Monday. And the knowing of parents and teachers knowing, that type of knowing goes where standardized tests cannot go. So I threw out my plan, even though it was meaning-based. I met with Sally twice a week for 30 minutes. That's all I had. Based on the conversation with her dad, I did a lot more listening, a lot more nurturing, a lot more supporting. We opened every session with a language experience activity. Sally told me about something going on in her life, and I'd write it down on the screen using 24-point font. Then we would practice reading using her words and her experiences until she could read her story fluently. She could feel successful. Now, at first, Sally didn't want to do it. She was very reluctant. So we started out with one sentence. What should we write about today, Sally? I don't know. Did you do anything fun yesterday? No. Should I write that down? No. Okay, how about if I, I, we start with, my name is Sally. Is that okay? Yes. Anything else? No. Okay, my name is Sally. That's it. That's what I wrote. Eventually, we had a two-sentence minimum. I always send a, set a minimum sentence, minimum number of sentences when I'm doing language experience activities. Initially, I had to ask her a question to pull these ideas out of her. That's because she was talking with a strange little bald man on a computer. There was no trust. There was no relationship. She didn't know if I was going to frustrate her or make her feel less able or bore her. It's a bit like holding out a peanut for a squirrel. That squirrel's got to trust you before it comes and grabs the peanut. Here's something she wrote. I played bingo. I got three prizes. I played in the gym two times. These are all words and, and uh, experiences that are from her actual lived experience, her life. When she began to see that I was interested in what she had to say, I didn't have to work so hard to get two sentences out of her. 
didn't happen right away. Trust is earned, not given away freely. And she learned it was about her and her ideas. Here's another one. I went to the gym. We played games. I colored at the gym. These are nice short sentences. By the way, sometimes when students uh, dictate very long sentences to you, it's okay to break them into short sentences to make them easier for students to read. All of a sudden, when Sally sat down, she had things to tell me. And I wrote them down. We read them. She began to realize that she wasn't made to feel stupid. I wasn't going to make her do boring stuff or frustrating stuff. And yes, we ended every session with a game, three to five minutes. It was something positive to end on. Good thing to do. Here's a story she wrote later on. I couldn't read with Miss Howe today because she was a substitute teacher for a different class. I'm done. That's it. And I always honored her if she met the minimum. Then we would go on. And we would do short mini phonics lessons. This is called analytic phonics. I'd teach her a letter or I'd analyze, ask her to analyze words she already knew. Like, find the word with the b, b sound. What do you hear in the middle of fiddle? D, d. What's the same about d, dish and mud? D, d, d. And we'd save her stories. Every day we started with the previous session stories. And sometimes we'd use a bunch of her stories for reading practice. Here's another one. We ended level five, and for our celebration, we had extra recess. And I have a whole bunch of exclamation points because she was very happy. Then her dad sent me a picture or two, and we used these for our stories. This is called priming pictures. It's a great way to get students writing. Simply present a picture and ask, what do you want to say about this picture? Or what's going on? Or what should we write about this picture? She wrote this, a picture of her in the car with her friends. She wrote this, I was riding in my friend's car and my dad took a picture. That's how I wrote this story. And what's interesting here, she says, that's how I wrote this story. I wrote this story. She's seen herself as a literate person here. So these led to pictures from the neighborhood and all sorts of interesting other uh, discussions occur. So back to Sally. An interesting thing happened. At the same time I was working with Sally, I was working with another first grade girl, Molly, who was very similar. Both these little girls were struggling to read. Both of them started writing notes to their parents. Both were in first grade, as I said. Uh, but both of them started writing things, first notes to their parents. They started expressing their thoughts and their feelings. They used temporary spelling, but this wonderful, literate thing started to emerge because they realized that their thoughts were important. The literacy thing was just fine. They were able to create writing. They were able to make letter sound associations. They knew how to read. They just weren't very good at it. So we made baby steps. I saw them just twice a week for 30 minutes, for 10 weeks in the fall and 10 weeks in the spring. 
baby steps, and the parents thought I was magic. When all I did was not make them feel stupid or feel like failures, I reinforced their natural literacy inclination, and I recognized the emotional element. Did I fix them? Well, they weren't broken. They just needed to see themselves as readers, and they needed to learn in a way that was best for them, and not be forced into a one-size-fits-all program that was being implemented on them with fidelity. Now, had I been able to work with her every day, we would have made even more progress. Had I been able to coordinate with the reading specialist, we would have made even more progress. But COVID and fidelity got in the way. Now, this summer, her dad told me that Sally asked him to get her books that she could read, that she was able to read for to, to her younger sister. This is good stuff. She is seeing herself as literate. She wants to read books. She wants to read books that she is able to read. So yes, I found some wonderful books. Black Rabbit Books publishes some great high-low books, expository books with lots of vocab and color that students at this age are able to read comfortably. All right, that's the story of Sally and the story of how standardized tests fall far short of what they're claimed to do. Standardized tests are a tool, but they're just one tool, and their effectiveness is determined by how that tool is used. Currently, they tend to be overused and misused.